All right, cool. So, uh, um, very privileged to have, I think, a total of uh, five guys and ladies from uh, FNB. So, uh, you know, I was duly informed exactly what to say and what not to say. So, I won't say what I'm not going to say. But they did ask that, um, yes, it's three presentations, but it's actually one. So, they're all here standing ready to go. And they've got their pacing and... Uh, Let's have them um, say what they want to say and share with us today. And then after that, um, there'll be time for questioning uh, and observations. And then I know um, Ashley then also wants to close with a few powerful statements um, <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of today and what you should really be taking away. Not, it's not what you think you should be taking away. So. So guys, then without further ado, um, so we've got, I think first up, just correct me if I got the wrong, so it's Bernard and Jacqueline. Guys, so um, Bernard has got a PhD from the University of Leicester, where he researched machine learning models to classify land cover classes from satellite imagery. So um, he also has nine years experience in model development with a within a banking environment, and he's currently the head of lifecycle analytics at West Bank where his team focuses on understanding customer behavior through advanced analytics. Guys, are you behind the, uh, the pillars? I mean, maybe just come out. Don't be shy. We don't bite banking people, you know. At least not hard. And then Jacqueline, um, Jacqueline there, she's got uh, an honors degree in finance and HS banking experience. She's also recently completed a certificate in graphic design. Jacqueline currently works and plays as a data scientist in life cycle analytics at the team at West Bank. She builds models and visualization tools using advanced analytics to help understand customer behavior. Okay, then next we're going to have Eric. Eric, just uh, there you go. And then uh, Baviata. There you go. That's Eric and Baviata. So Eric's a software developer at FNB. He's been a tech developer in financial banking for over 10 years and his current work and research focus on natural language processing. That could be very interesting. Eric Baviata has a degree in computational applied maths and computer science, as well as being an actuarial student who is nearly qualified. Well done. Um, and then she's currently managing the FNB advanced analytics area, focusing on developing analytical solutions across the first RAND group. And then finally, uh, Godfrey. You go, Godfrey and uh, Baviata again. Is that right? What what's you what are you gonna do? So, uh, you guys, okay, all right, okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> so, uh, um, and the topic there will be F and B property rating scales. Um, so again, uh, yeah, I'm not gonna carry on with this, guys. Please go ahead. So we from FNB in first round, and we basically want to share some insights with you into, I guess, our data and our analytics environment. Um, so in first round, we're quite passionate about using data and analytics to drive business value and strategies. Um, not just having the technologies, but actually seeing real value come out of that. Um, so what happened is internally we had a competition, it's called QuantFest, so it's kind of similar to like Kaggle. Um, what happens is the business units come up with challenges. Uh, the challenges are things they're currently facing where they need help. 
and then from there, analysts and system specialists have about two months to develop a solution. So you get access to a wide variety of data sources, um, and then from there, we basically use machine learning and techniques to develop those solutions. I guess the aim of the program is how do we bring our data science community together and have knowledge sharing and technique sharing. Um, so these are basically some of the solutions we're going to share with you. Um, just sort of a note, because of the confidentiality of the information, we can't share too much. So it's quite high level just because of that. Cool. Uh, thank you, Babiata. Okay, so um, the challenge that uh, we took on was called Time for a New Vehicle. So the solution we present today is called Which Car is Best for Me? Uh, so it's basically to go through the methodology that we used for that project. So I'm Bernard Spies, Jacqueline Collett. Um, so we've heard a lot about various machine learning things this morning and uh, a lot of actually aerial stuff, so we thought to come back to basics. So this is a tree in nature, and this is a tree in machine learning. So if we look at oh, the uh, definition on Wikipedia, says a decision tree is a decision support tool that uses a tree-like graph or model of decisions and their possible consequences, including chance event outcomes, resource costs, and utility. It's one way to display an algorithm that only contains conditional control statements. Okay, well, that's quite a mouthful. So let's break this down. First of all, we have the root, which is there at the top. We have various nodes and edges and leaves at the end. So it basically says you try to predict something, and all these nodes are various variables, and the edges are essentially the uh, values uh, as, as the data flows through this tree, and the end is the, the result, is the leaves. So let's take an example. If you want to say you want to predict income, so first variable in this scenario is, okay, does the person have an income or not? Uh, and if they do, are they retired? If yes, then this might be the income. If, if not, are they employed or not? Yes, this might be the income. Otherwise, uh, slightly less. If you don't, any steady income, it might, might be on welfare, you might still get a income of sorts. Um, otherwise, yeah, there might still be some other income stream. So a decision tree, essentially at each and every node, there's a information gain value. So it, it, it takes all the data, it flows through there, and you have to maximize the information gains. So like the algorithm tries to optimize for that. So back in the day, when I first came across data mining, uh, was of course in 2003, so then it was basically, okay, you've got these models to learn from. You can either use a logistic regression or a decision tree or a basic neural network. And that was the options yet. Um, research has since moved on a lot uh, in the last 15 years till then. A lot has changed. And uh, one of the main or one of the big advances in this space was to use ensemble models. So you do, these days we don't only have a tree. Have a forest. So this is a forest in nature, and similarly, this is a forest in machine learning. Uh, 
Okay, so random forests, um, or random recession forests, or an ensemble learning method for classification, regression, other tasks. Um, and at the end, here it says it's a random forest, correct for decision trees habit of overfitting the training data set. Okay, so similarly, you don't get only have one tree, but you've got multiple trees, not tens or hundreds, but 500 to 1,000 or a lot more. Okay, so just a bit of the nuts and bolts in that. So where does the random element come in? So each decision tree is trained individually. Okay, so just taking a step back from your survey, so about a third of the respondents said they don't know the random forest methodology very well, so I think this is hopefully fitting. But so um, each decision tree is, is uh, trained independently and uh, it uses two-thirds of the data set in terms of the, the rows, and the third is left outside. So that's called the out-of-bag uh, sample. So each time the classification is uh, compared to that. As well as at each decision node, only a portion of the variables are available to be selected. So that's, so it's random on many levels. It's random on the rows for every decision tree, as well as random in terms of the variables that are considered. And at the end, after you've got multiple decision trees, a majority vote is cast. So that's essentially to say, if we were to pose a question to everyone in this room, what would the answer be if we take the majority vote across e everyone? So over time, that sh uh, shows to be a better result than only asking one person all the time. Okay, so Jacqueline will take you a bit further. Hi, everybody. Um, okay, so, sorry. Can you hear me? <laughs> okay. Um, so another benefit of a random forest, to go back to Bernard's initial example, is it allows you to do something called the variable importance ranking. So you could possibly use this to enhance another model that you have, may it be a logistic regression, to help you choose variables. So what the variable importance ranking does is it says which um, variable contributes to the accuracy of the model. So in R1, income was quite important as it helped make our model more accurate. So um, another benefit of a random forest is you can't just necessarily apply it to a regression model. It also is quite useful in classification examples. And even a step further, it's not just useful for a binary answer, so yes, no, good, bad. It's also, as we used it, um, for multiple categories. So for our solution, to give you a bit of background about the problem, um, the business challenge that was posed to us was to try and figure out what was the best time to buy a new vehicle. Our solution consisted of five independent models. The one I'm going to show you here is it, yeah, it, it had three different models um, and it tried to predict what would be your next vehicle purchase. So we had Westbank customer and account data, and to that we added vehicle information. And there at the top here, we only have those five cars, but the same principle applies to our model. Those would be our different levels, or our, we use the classification random forest in this case to ultimately say for the specific customer which would be the most likely vehicle he would purchase next. Um, the methodology used is similar to where you would get LinkedIn people you may know or Amazon products you may want to buy, TripAdvisor somewhere you'd like to go next, or Netflix, a movie we think you'd like to watch. Yeah, 
That's us. Thanks. Hi, I'm, I'm Eric. Um, today, we want to chat to you or share with you um, a solution that we busy building, uh, how to improve our customer services using chatbot. So the issues that we have today is through our call center where we have a lot of queue or we have customer not being happy because they can find help easily and quicker. And using the AI, just like you guys are using AI in the insurance environment, you can also use AI in the banking industry to improve the, the, the customer. So machine learning in NLP is the technology we're using to create this uh, computer system that chats to uh, a human being. So we create a computer agent, and the idea behind is to integrate the chatbot into our platform. In our case, is the banking app, where customer can actually do more than they can do on the on the on the banking app. So the the data that we use here is basically the the, the entire data that we we have uh, uh, in the bank related to the particular customer. So for instance, if you want to do your, let's say your FICA, you can take a picture quickly to do your FICA or to be compliant instead of having to uh, go and scan a document and send it to the, to the, to the consultant to actually, to actually help. So um, our presentation was cut very short because we couldn't share some, a lot of data so just giving you a high overview of what you can do with data and artificial intelligence in the, in the banking industry. So we have case study where international companies have saved a lot of money by implementing a chatbot into the environment, say increasing the revenue and also reducing labor uh, uh, hours. So yeah, uh, yeah is basically uh, telling you what you can do with a chatbot and how you can improve your your, your customer satisfaction. Wasn't that much, but this is just um, a quick URL where you can go and find more about um, chatbot and how to improve your environment using artificial intelligence and and, and chatbot. Thanks. Okay, um, so this problem. To sort of give you a high-level view of it, so it's also a bit of a sensitive information one. Um, but if you think about it, it's like how before credit ratings were judgmental. So if you wanted credit before, what would happen is you would walk in and evaluator would then decide how much credit you could get because he knew you personally and those kinds of things. So in terms of this problem, we're looking at something similar, but in terms of air, the area world. So how do we decide if this is a good or a bad area? But instead of it being a judgmental view, how do you have a data-driven view that tells you good versus bad? So kind of how now you can walk in and a credit scorecard has variables which are telling you your credit rating. Um, so that's the high level of the problem. If you think about it, what we do is we put data as inputs. So that would be the kind of things you would think about when you're buying a house. Um, so crime rates, what's the economic activity, how is the area growing, those kinds of things. 
Where the machine learning comes in is then we used unsupervised machine learning. So unsupervised machine learning is just how do I create these classifications? So you give the model all these different things and then it tells you this group is very different from another group. But everybody in the group is very similar to each other. So that method is basically like your clustering k-means example. Um, from there we basically then get areas which are sort of good versus bad. Okay, so this is an overview of the technical solution. Um, so we basically look at a lot of geospatial information. I guess that's why this problem is interesting because you don't work with normal data that you used to. So you start working with geospatial boundaries and those kinds of things. Um, we basically take all those inputs and then you put it into a clustering model and then we get segments out of there. Another thing that was interesting in this case is you'll see when you actually use unsupervised learning in business, it's a bit more difficult to understand than say a logistic regression because you can't tell whether it's right or wrong. So what we saw is when you're working with unsupervised learning, you have to put some sort of business input into it. Otherwise the business struggles a lot to understand what's happening. Okay, so then after that we basically take the machine learning and the business information and get this sort of rating which tells you a good area versus a bad area. Okay. Just to continue from what Baviata was saying, um, one key information that she didn't mention that I think actually is, it will be interesting to mention is the this data because this um, solution, it exists in the home loans area. So we actually incorporated the, the this data to be able to see um, like a wider um, home loans data across the banks, not just across FNB or FastRAN. So, I mean, in that, we're trying to say, don't just uh, maybe limit your solution to what is available just within your bank. You can also go uh, external. So then some of the benefits of this solution, as I was highlighting, is that uh, <coughs> um, this kind of a solution that is data-driven compared to a manual solution it allows the bank to actually to originate better across the country instead of only originating from areas that are well known or more like a, um, you're actually well known given the past performances and such. You can actually use this data-driven solution to um, originate from areas that are less well known. Why? Because uh, you're using a data-driven solution. As long as, uh, I mean, the data that comes out of that, those areas have got good quality. You can actually use it to drive your home loans uh, um, originations. By doing that, you'll also be increasing um, uh, or prom uh, um, improving um, your, your future LGDs. Like, uh, I mean, if you originate better, your future losses will actually, will actually uh, lessen. Across that, we're also saying, I mean, because it's data-driven, you are able to... Um, reduce the operational cost and time required to do a manual evaluation and also keep your, your, um, your ratings, your error ratings up to date instead of only doing it once in a while when a, a home is being sold and so forth. Um, and another key interesting thing around this solution is that it has a wider use cases. Like uh, you can actually use it to assess uh, the economical strength of an area. In that you're able to see areas that are actually developing I mean, when you know those areas as a business, you can actually extend your business to those new areas, which means in future, while they are well matured, you will be able to reap benefits instead of focusing on old areas that you might find out they are deteriorating 
given the change in performances of the markets. Um, okay, that's us. <laughs> Okay, thank you very much, uh, guys from FNB and ladies, thank you. So you said very little on your presentations, and I think the challenge is, is uh, see if we can tell you to share maybe a little bit more <laughs> around the specific until we find that line which you don't want to say anymore. So, <laughs> so guys, any questions uh, for the FNB team? Uh, thanks, guys, for the presentation. Uh, just a question on that which car is best. Um, besides Random Forest, did you use any other ensemble techniques like uh, XG Boost? Uh, so, so in, in this solution, um, we didn't know. So, so um, but we did use both supervised and unsupervised for other parts of the solution. So we only showed you the random forest, but we used other types of machine learning as well. Um, thanks for that. Um, I wanted to ask a question with regards to the property rating scale, um, particularly with the unsupervised learning techniques that you guys employed. Um, I would assume that uh, in some of the, for example, the crime rate stuff, there's some bit of uh, spatial dependency. Yeah. and perhaps also some bit of time consistency or time dependence over time. Yeah. Uh, do the models that you guys employed actually allow for that? Um, yeah, so I guess what we do is we look at the, in terms of the time dependency, we look at the, the area to date. So if you take, for example, four ways, we take all the data about four ways from the past and we aggregate it up until a point in time. And then the second part, which I guess isn't there, is so we say, okay, is four is a good area right now? Then the question from there is, okay, if I'm lending property to four ways, because a home loan is sort of like a 20-year term, it's what will happen to four ways in the future? So the second thing is, can we dial in? Okay. <laughs> so the second thing is sort of what factors do you look at which are factors that a place is declining. So like Hillbrow was perfect at a certain point, but there were these warning factors that Hillbrow was changing a lot and wasn't this good area that it always was. So what it is is a point in time model. And then there's another model which is not a which is a supervised model which then predicts how will I be in the next time period. Um, your second question was the spatialness. Um, so when we build the model, we don't say that just because you're close to this area, there must be some sort of similarity. Um, the reason for that is, I guess a part of the reason for this model is in the home loans world, what you'll see is you can be one area and on this side of the street, you can have good quality business and on this side, you can have bad quality business. Um, so we don't want to limit it to that. Just because you know a good area, that means you're another good area, if that makes sense. Just to, just to add the special around the point um, about time, we, we realized that actually if you capture time in your variables, like Bagheera was saying, because this is a long-term kind of uh, a loan, so what do you do? You can actually look at the past performance of the area, like you can look at uh, how did uh, maybe um, a home 
in example or maybe a house being passed from generation maybe from time to time so you can actually look how did that the prices change over time and maybe actually predict more like it's more like have a variable that captures the increase in in prices and so forth you you don't have to worry about the solution per se as long as the variables capture that kind of uh, of, uh, of, of it, it comes through from the solution itself um i think so. i'm not sure if you guys have already like maybe did some uh, comparison in some of the performances of uh, those clustering techniques, for example, with um, some special statistic statistical models. Have you like have a use case of that just to see how um, those models compare like to the traditional spatial methods? Yeah, I guess we we haven't done that. Um, just because this is sort of I guess in the initiation phase, and because of the results we were getting from it, um, it's already like we're just trying to like work with that I guess for now um, because quite a bit came out of it um, and also the fact that we've built sort of a okay this suburb is different from that suburb um, but in terms of enhancing it we actually want to make that much more granular where you're not working in suburbs because of the differences in suburbs so I guess we haven't tested that but I'd say a big part of it is we don't want it to like spatially bias it. So we wanted to see them as different places, even if they knew each other. Thank you. You guys must realize we know a lot about these kind of things. We, you issue the home loan and we insure the car and the bicycle and the house. And we know about those streets and we know about the railways. So you can speak freely. Speak for yourself. Some of us are here to learn. Um, <laughs> We, we had a theme earlier about adoption, so I'm hell of a curious to understand how the valuators inside FNB are adopting your valuation model. I guess that's something also we've had wide discussions around it um, because our view is, look, machine learning should exist and models should exist, but I think especially in the property world, what we came to realize, because we've been working on this project, I think, for about six months, is that the world of property is complicated. Sometimes there's things that are happening that a valuator can see because he has these instincts and he knows about it that your data might not see. And I guess what we've come to, and with all of our solutions, we say, look, the model is not, it doesn't know everything. It actually needs to exist with the people and the two must live together. So it's not that the valuators don't matter anymore. It's sort of how do the valuators matter with a data-driven solution. So I think that balance always has to be there. Um, it's not that you have data or machine learning, so we don't need any people, because the people are there for a reason. It's just sort of, you know, if he's doing the same thing all of the time and data can do that bit for him, then he can do the side where he's bringing in the value. Yeah, and just to add there, actually, that I think that is a good question because um, that was uh, one of the um, challenges that we faced because it can attach into people's lives like job security and such. But like Baviata said, it's more like the, the whole concept around AI, machine learning, they cannot exist without humans because like if you think of our evaluator that has been working in the market for 20 years, we need that experience. You need that experience to build it in, into the solution. Actually, is the right person to t even test it. In most cases, you find out they're even more like reluctant to uh, participate, but they are the right people to actually question what you're building because they know the market. But what they will also learn is that what they didn't know, especially 
like we said earlier in the slides, that the areas that they don't know so well, but data does know those areas. So I, I guess that's where actually, I mean, some organizations struggle. We, we just need to get the balance between these machines um, and people. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, it's very encouraging to see actuaries and non-actuaries working together to solve business problems and, and using advanced analytics techniques. So, so thank you for being here today. Um, the question that I have is around the selection of the next car and the level of granularity that was actually applied in that modeling. So was it at a class of vehicle or did you go all the way down to a BMW 3 Series that's blue? Okay. So to answer your question both, um, because our model kind of showed us that similar people um, buy similar cars for similar reasons. So we first went up until a range and then we went down to make and model. So we were eventually able to predict the make and model within a range of 10 cars. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's usually similar cars. So we can see if you're brand loyal. We can see, yeah, if it's going to be a BM, you're probably going to buy one again or you're going to buy something similar. You're not suddenly going to go to a, I don't know, I don't want to say any other car and offend somebody, so <laughs> some other car. <laughs> and maybe just to follow on to that, mm. um, did, you, did you see any movements um, towards more um, energy efficient cars, in particular groupings um, or, or profiles of individuals? So for example, moving from petrol to diesel or else to hybrid cars? Um, not really, but we did see a lot of movement towards SUVs, especially the small compact SUV class, which made it actually quite difficult to model because we used historical data and the SUV market didn't exist before. We almost had to cater for somebody who bought a similar type of car previously to wanting to buy an SUV now and whatever is going to be available in the future. How much was price uh, factored into that kind of affordability or a package value kind of features? Um, that was another interesting one because price obviously changes over time. So we had to cater for things like inflation and, and just the general environment or the whole automotive environment over time. Could you describe it to an economic cycle? Did you have enough data for that? Um, I think... When it comes to picking your next car, the price is much more important than what you picked before. Okay. Thank you. Back to the cars. <laughs> okay. Um, so car just, a, just a question on, on the next car. Mm. Did, did you see people sort of taking the same car, just the facelift? Or particularly on the younger ages, I, I just want to know, like, for example, were they looking for a, the sort of the same car that increased in performance? or just the same car, just a facelift? Um, well, because we used both customer and account data and we used the vehicle information, um, it, it depended on the type of customer. So certain people will always buy the SD, the GTI. It doesn't matter in which range they go, they always go for high performance. So the features of the cars were quite important in how people selected them as well as 
like family cars and how you almost go through your life cycle because we didn't just have to track the life cycle of the economy and the cars but also the people because when you bought your last car you were maybe in a different life stage than you are in now and that was actually quite predictive as well that's what my wife says i must get rid of the bm <laughs> we'll see what we can do did you also give us cool names like petrol heads we did give you cool oh, names is it? Cool. yes you did have cool names the cars also had cool one. names uh, on the the which best car okay uh so how accurate is your model so as i suppose you've built it and you're testing it in terms of the true outcome so you would have modeled me and now i'm buying so how accurate is that right and uh, the second question is, so what? Now that you've got this model that me as a customer I don't know of, I don't see it, what next? Are you using it to market to me? Maybe next time when I'm about to buy and does it also have sort of what, what is the best time to start maybe marketing to me? Okay. Thanks. So, I can't tell you exactly how we can implement it because that's the part that got deleted out of the presentation. Um, but what I can tell you is we definitely take into account where you are currently and the likelihood of you maybe wanting to buy a new car and then looking at you personally in terms of what you're going to buy next. And then for your first question in terms of accuracy, um, obviously we were less accurate in predicting your next car if we didn't know a lot about what you bought per previously but the more we knew about you the better our prediction got and um, our accuracy increased even more with just the single user input so if we knew just a little bit more about what you were looking at next our accuracy was, was really good um, yeah, so, so as Jacqueline said, so, so uh, over time, the more, if we know what your previous car or the two cars before was, we can, it increases in accuracy as it goes on. Uh, so there is the first model where it's like, okay, we don't know anything before, so that model still applies. Even if you're a new customer, it will still, and it's still pretty good, yeah. It's another one here, yeah. Um, okay, nice presentation. I'm going to the car again. <laughs> um, I'm assuming, I mean, you're using uh, like, uh, your bank data, your customer data. Um, do you guys take account of, let's say, people buying cars for other people, like maybe their spouses and their children? And when you do that prediction, is that prediction going to make, is, it, is the prediction going to be based on the car that person bought? Or, I don't know. Um, so, all of the above. Um, we try and see whether um, there are relationships between people. So to see whether maybe you're buying a car for your, your child, your wife, maybe your mistress, we can check <laughs> and then almost segment it because um, we saw that our results were quite skewed if, say, you drive a Range Rover and suddenly you're buying a Kia Picanto. Mm. So we did pick up some of that. Mm. I didn't say that when we saw the mistress. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Does that answer your question? Okay, cool. So, but where would you get that information? I mean, I'm just buying. <laughs> <laughs> on your mistress or? <laughs> 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 no okay, guys. So um, I, th I think the car model is getting a lot of attention. Um, 
I'm going to ask one to Eric, maybe, just uh, you know, around, because his uh, just presentation was also centered, and we want to find out. So um, uh, my question is just in terms of the data that you used to uh, train your, your chatbot. Was it FNB specific? Was it relating to past customer interactions? And how did you get the data in the format that you could actually train? So the, the, the data comes from our current uh, secure chat that we have on the app, our call center agent, our social media. So we push the data into some sort of a NLP process that generate topic, then we train the agent, then, then answer question based on those topic by pulling data in the back end. Yeah. Was there also some categorization or grouping uh, so that it could be interrogated by humans and validated? Um, so, sorry, I guess for the chatbot, what basically happens is, so Eric is a developer, like he said, um, and he basically worked with our team, um, the analytics team. Um, so what happens is, like, if I'm speaking now, all of this becomes unstructured data. So all the voice and all the typing and stuff is unstructured. From the unstructured data, that's the machine learning part, um, where it takes all the unstructured data and then using algorithms, we find what is the main reason of this conversation. So you basically get like topics out of it. So like I can phone into the call center and speak for like an hour, and then it will come out and will say, okay, the reason I called is my credit card is lost. I don't know something about it. Um, from there, what we do is then when I type on the chatbot, it can then understand what I'm saying because it can turn the unstructured into a topic. It wasn't necessary for you to convert uh, voice to text in terms of amplifying the data set that you needed. Um, so, in uh, like call center yeah. interactions, you yeah, had so check. our call center interactions um, we converted from speech oh, you to did. text. Oh, okay. Speech to text, yes. Yeah, so that's that's running. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Anyone else? Go. Um, you're the last speaker, so you must just flag me. If, yeah. I just on the um, the language processing one. Didn't you have particular problems with vernacular and you know South African dialect and accents when you when you converted that speech to text? Um, what actually happens is there's software running in the call center. Um, so it picks up what you're saying and it converts it to text. Um, yeah. So you have, a, I would say, a decent accuracy rate, but it is sometimes that it will look like it's sort of gibberish. Um, but what's nice is even if you don't pick up all the words I'm saying in this sentence, um, I'm not trying to understand the sentence you're saying. I'm just trying to understand the reason you're calling in. So even if I don't get the sentence exactly with my conjunctions and everything like that, when you do your machine learning, I'm just trying to understand the topic of what you're talking about. So it's okay if you don't have a 100% conversion. And sorry, and just to also add there is that um, that's why this concept of big data is quite important because you'll realize that like she was saying, maybe what is not useful or, or what is more like uh, doesn't make sense, it gets discarded. You also have another information that comes in to replace it. How? Because you found out 
um, some customers actually talk normal language. So the nice thing is that these uh, softwares that do tropic kind of uh, modeling, they are very good to identify what doesn't make sense, and then you kick it out. You're left with what makes sense, then you can work from there. Uh, does your software include sentiment analysis? Same thing. Once you have unstructured um, data, you can understand the topic and you can understand the sentiment analysis as well. So it's the same analytics that you're applying on top of it. Okay. Any final comments, questions? Thanks, guys. Um, just in terms of, it, this might be a bit of a social responsibility or professional responsibility of an actuary. Um, there's an American data scientist who believes, the, the, like the model you guys built for property, actually um, doesn't solve inequality problems often, and often it reinforces it. So I'll just give you an example. Um, let's say person X was born free. Um, they ended up going to university. They're very astute with their money but they want to live where their parents lived. Um, so they buy a house on a property or in an area that you guys have classified is, is potentially a poor risk. Um, so really my question is, have you guys made sure that the users of your model are either equipped to, um, to override a model output like that? Um, yeah, so there is a judgmental side, um, but one thing I do want to mention, um, but I guess sort of at a high level, so I guess the reason I disagree with you on this is because one of the main reasons for the model was to create more equality. Um, so if you think about credit ratings before um, as the metaphor, the credit ratings was based on how this person knew me. How the person knew me has judgment and bias. Um, the person could like me more than somebody else. The minute I change that to data-driven, it's more about the facts behind it and my income and my salary. So I guess my big thing with the property thing is, look, it does have factors in it, but it's putting everybody on a level playing field. So all areas have the same factors going in and we're comparing you. Um, so if it was, say, like a township or something, then that township is then judged on the data. It's not judged on anything else. So I, I feel like the data doesn't necessarily make it unequal, but it can sometimes make it more equal compared to human judgment. I think this is a very important topic. It's one that we've discussed many times. Uh, it's well, uh, I think, in a lot of articles is presented as well. So, and I think it can be succinctly put as, you know, if you look at a customer environment, uh, do you still allow the model to be trained in, to, in respect of past data on something like race, uh, which the model would pick up on a trend of historic inequality and obviously use that or reinforce that in terms of decision making going forward. So it's a very important topic that I think you guys are going to battle with still um, a while in terms of the ethics we certainly are. And you nearly qualified, so you're going to be battling with it as well. <laughs> cool. Guys, really stimulating, very thought-provoking, um, awesome. I really want to uh, thank you for being here, um, including all the presenters. I don't want to take away from Ashley, 
but yes, please do also consider inviting us to your conferences and let's share some information and thoughts. Thank you.